the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Uriel filling in for Dan. Um, We have a guest who's such a fun guy to talk to. It's Dominic Green, Deputy U.S. Editor of The Spectator. Dominic, thanks for coming on again. Hello, Jim. Hello. So, okay, I read a couple of your articles recently. There's a couple that jumped out. One that you wrote about, about the, you called it Biden is set to repeat Obama's Mideast failures. What would be the most stark differences between uh, President Biden's Middle East policy versus Donald Trump's? Well, Donald Trump um, attained a very interesting balancing act, which I don't think he's given as much credit as he probably deserves for, which was to simultaneously withdraw American troops from the region while solidifying America's network of alliances. Because as a great power, the United States is in a position to use its alliances in order to get its allies to do its work for it. Of course, the Bush and then the Obama administrations were more comfortable getting involved in situations than they were getting out of them. And of course, the question with the Biden administration now is, are they going to slide back to the kind of interventionist thinking that uh, the Bush and Obama administrations uh, did? So one question I have about, and we're going to get to the bombings in Syria because I have a lot of questions about those. But first, was Donald Trump, did, did countries fear him more? And is that why it was easier for him to get them to do the bidding for us? I think you're right, Jim. Um, with Donald Trump, as I used to say about Richard Nixon, that his game was to be crazy like a fox, right. that he was unpredictable and he was prepared to do things which were uh, unconventional, outside the box thinking, um, not the traditions you'd expect from the inside the beltway foreign policy elite, which, let's face it, has driven the U.S. into positions that are almost unwinnable. In Iraq and Afghanistan, which has smashed up Libya, damaged the credibility of the U.S. abroad, uh, Donald Trump was very much against uh, avoiding that kind of thinking in those kind of areas and was unpredictable. The difficulty, of course, now is that Biden and his team have come in saying that they want to go back to normalcy. Well, what does normalcy look like? It looks like policies which don't achieve their stated goals. They don't increase American security, don't increase America's standing in the world. And you have to wonder, with this uh, bombing in Syria today, whether this is an early step down that same path to sliding into Syria, of all places, uh, the country where President Obama quite wisely avoided getting drawn in, and where Donald Trump certainly didn't want to get drawn in. That makes sense. Um, here's my question to you. What what is the if we, let's say we just hypothetically that our current that our the new Middle Eastern policy that we're adopting in the United States is terrible and it fails. What does that failure look like? Well, one failure uh, looks like our, our traditional allies in the region, say Israel, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf Arabs, Egypt. They all start now to look for new relationships and new patrons because 
you know, the saying is um, it's better to be the United States enemy than its friend because uh, the, the U.S.'s policy keeps changing. Uh, and so these countries have to formulate long-term plans based on who's going to stick it out. If you look at the way the Russians have come back in the region, you know, after 40 years of being locked out of the Middle East, the Russians have basically tiptoed back in because the U.S. has withdrawn and ceased keeping tight alliances. The Russians are able very cheaply to regain a crucial role in the region. And now the U.S. is attempting to assert itself again. Um, if it doesn't do this very carefully, it's going to end up walking into a trap, in effect, is what is being set for it in Syria. Are we, are we talking about oil still here? Is that when we talk about the Middle no. East? No, we're not. What, what else are we talking about? Well, we're talking about oil in, in indirectly rather than directly, okay. because you know, the United States is now energy independent, but oil remains a crucial card in global politics. Uh, China's economic growth still depends on China getting deliveries of large amounts of oil and natural gas through the Persian Gulf. So unless we want to cede influence in the global energy markets to China, the U.S. has most definitely got an interest in keeping a thumb on the pipeline. That makes sense. It doesn't make sense to do it with American soldiers and sailors and airmen's lives. It makes sense to do it by using allies to hold the line for you. That's what great powers have always done in history. And the United States has done it very differently, uh, often for noble reasons, because of a belief in self-determination and freedom and these kind of things. But it hasn't worked. And so it seems that the U.S. might do better to fall back on the more traditional ways of doing this. You get your allies to do the dirty work. Okay, so this next question might be a dumb question, and I have no problem with you telling me that if it is. Um, so when I look at democratic policy and they talk about the Green New Deal, is it's somehow embedded in their thinking that the future they see is much, much less about oil, and then their present-day thinking is is you know changes because of that is that and and the rest of the world obviously doesn't probably have the high hopes that the democratic party does in this country yes no it's not a dumb question at all i mean you've really put your finger on it actually um if the world is going to stop running on carbon fuel for a start we need a great deal of ingenuity and a great deal of investments to even think about getting there we're still a long way off but even if the world's energy markets changes to post-carbon green fuels that doesn't mean the United States can simply ignore the rest of the world. Any great power will need to be sure that the shipping lanes stay open, that the laws which govern international trade are the laws that we would like to have. Because, you know, the current system globally was written by the United States after 1945. So if the U.S. wants to keep working in a global system where the rules work in its favor, then it most definitely still has an interest in being out there in the world. And, and what I would argue for is, is being smarter about it, doing it better, not risking lives, not uh, dropping bombs automatically as a response to a situation. That, to me, is, is, is we're gonna, we have a serious risk of sliding back now into the post-9-11 overreach, and which didn't work. We must unfortunately admit it didn't work for the U.S., didn't work for its allies like Britain, for instance, didn't work for anybody. There has to be a better way of doing this, of still shaping the world system so that it benefits the U.S. and its allies without definitely sending in the troops. Okay, so the, the bombing in Syria that just recently happened, when you read that headline, what was your first thought on the motivation for that? Is it just as advertised that we were, you know, responding and it was about Iranian, um, you know, aggression? Or is there more, of the, is this Joe Biden 
trying to tell the world that he's to be taken seriously? How do we read it? Yeah, I think this is an, part of the uh, strategy designed to push Iran back into renegotiation over the Iran deal, in that uh, so far the U.S. has been very much criticized for um, taking a soft approach of not responding, for instance, when rockets were fired in Iraq at, uh, by an Iranian ally, you know, at the defense installations there a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think this is a carrot-and-stick approach. They're trying to be, you know, good cop, bad cop, and uh, to use this to say, yes, we won't tolerate this, but we will tolerate that. The problem is that the Iranian regime is very experienced and very skillful at manipulating the negotiating arena. They've lasted for 40 years with the U.S. trying to cut them off from sources of foreign money, and they're still there. Presidents, meanwhile, come and go. I don't believe that they will be intimidated by this carrot and stick at all. Instead, they will see a situation where they can exploit the fact that the U.S. is trying to cajole, cajole them and push them at the same time. I think they outmaneuvered us in Vienna in the negotiations for the uh, Iran deal, the JCPOA, in 2015. And I think they will do it again now. They're very, very smart. And from the Iranian point of view, and this is something we should always consider as in a game of chess, what is your opponent trying to play? The Iranians believe that they have a right to a kind of regional empire because they are an ancient civilization and they have had an empire in the Middle East before. So we have to seriously you know, understand them on their own terms and respond accordingly. And they're not going to be pushed into anything by a carrot and stick strategy. Okay, so when you answered that question, I noticed there was it was completely absent any sort of criticism of just political grandstanding. And I like that because when mm. I when I read that, then okay, it seems that your home makes it sound like there is some. But again, the, the Democrats, they don't want to be dropping bombs, right? Um, I mean, this is not this doesn't gain them any political points, does it? Well, this is a funny thing. The Democrats don't want to be dropping bombs, but they're very good at it. You know, Bill Clinton was very quick on the trigger. Yeah. So was Barack Obama when it came to Libya. Mm-hmm. Um, they're domestically, you know, the Democratic Party is now being driven from the left. It's the radical, younger wing of the party where the energy is. Domestically, this isn't going to go down well. Uh, but uh, in terms of Washington and the, the foreign policy establishment, well, the Democrats are part of that. The centrist Democrats, the Clintonians, the Obama people, the Biden people, they are absolutely part of the historic consensus in Washington, which is, a, if in doubt, go in. And that kind of interventionist mentality has got us into difficulties before, and I think it'll get us in a knot very quickly with Iran and its agents. Good, good. I'm so glad you have some cynicism, because when we talked about it at first, there was none. And I don't like to talk about politics without any cynicism at all, because that's just that's what I've grown to believe. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back. This is this has been a lot of fun. This is the Dan Prof Show. Thanks for joining us. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm Jim Urio sitting in for Dan. And I have Dominic Green, who's the deputy U.S. editor of The Spectator. And his thoughts on the Middle East and what happened in the Middle East, I thought, were fascinating and so on point. Um, There's something else I want to talk about, too. You you wrote an article, and again, this show, 
this show is about can be about finance, can be about uh, foreign policy, but also be about fun stuff too. And you wrote an article about Phil Spector called Phil Spector and the Sound of American Glory. I read it. So here's what I got out of it, and tell me what I'm missing. Phil Spector, who was a you know, big, huge deal in music production. By the way, I'm a, I'm a music guy myself, so I love this conversation. He killed somebody. We haven't canceled him. We still listen to his music. Nobody mentions it. Other people do things that are cancelable, and it happens quite quite quickly. Am I getting the gist? Yeah, you are. I mean, this is true. Phil Spector did something completely appalling. He killed Lana Clarkson, an actress, in what sounded from his account anyway, like a sort of bizarre game gone wrong. He had a history of pulling guns on people. Even the Ramones were terrified by Phil Spector. Um, on the other hand, uh, great artists down the centuries have done appalling things. Bernini, one of the greatest of Italian sculptors, uh, was a rapist who uh, killed at least two people and, and then uh, boasted about it in his autobiography, which he wrote because he was under house arrest. And yet, People go to Rome from all around the world in order to see those amazing fountains and statues that he made. The fact that remains that great art can be produced by appalling people, just as appalling art can be produced by great people. And the longer time passes, the more we tend to forgive these people. We are now in a deeply unforgiving time. The idea of cancelling people as if we can simply erase their existence, like cancelling the membership of uh, you know, a video club or an internet ID. This is a shocking thing. Um, Phil Spector is immune to this in part because people like his songs so much. They are part of the fabric of American life. I mean, I, I, I grew up in a family of musicians, um, played music myself when I was younger, and Phil Spector was always, as you're saying, you know, the greatest, the real sound of America. And uh, we can't live without him. Okay, but you're going to have to walk me through something here because I don't know if you watch the Super Bowl. I don't know if you're a fan of our football at all. But... I've been a big fan of Bruce Springsteen. I've been a fan for him a long time. I think the song Rosalita is just an epic journey. I, mm. I could listen to it over mm. and over again. Now, when Bruce Springsteen comes on and starts lecturing me about uniting and meeting in the middle and healing, the same people, and I, I, I don't have any of his quotes, but I make the assumption that he was one of the people who wasn't all that interested in healing a year ago, two years ago. Can I just, when, at what point am I going to be able to separate the art from the yeah. artist. Cause I don't, I don't know if he's a good guy. I don't care if he's a good guy. I just want to hear Rosalita again and not think about him lecturing me. What should I do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel much the same way. And, and, you know, of course, born to run that album was deliberately designed to sound like the Phil Spector sound, you know, that was a tribute to the golden. I'm age. glad I brought up the right guy then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I had to say, I, I met him a couple of times and found him to be an extremely nice and friendly and pretty much down to earth guy. Unfortunately, um, people do seem to feel obliged to, to offer these political statements. I, and I do wish they wouldn't either, because there is so much, too much politics, in fact, in our day-to-day -day lives. And one of the things you know, we could all share, for instance, with an appreciation of Rosalita, or the, or the finer other moments, of which there are many in the Springsteen canon, uh, and to appreciate that without division, virtue signaling, and the rest of it. Um, he has my deepest sympathy for being caught with an open can in a national park. You know, this he shows he's, he's a perfectly ordinary person. This could happen to any There's of us. No doubt about Although, it. Um, he, he he got it. What I liked was when the judge said, "Mr. Springsteen, that'll be a five hundred dollar fine. Uh, how would you like to pay?" <laughs> and uh, he said, "I think I'll pay it now in one." Um, so no, I, I I wish that it didn't happen because you're right. There there are artists who when when they're on stage and singing, you know, it's wonderful. And when they open their mouth in between the songs, it's disastrous. And, right. and I, I think they misunderstand their public after a while. They may be the isolation of fame and success 
they misunderstand it. You know, if I want to hear those opinions, I can always, you know, buy a copy of the New York Times and read the op-ed page and, and uh, have it from them. I don't need Bruce to tell me that. What I do want from Bruce, of course, is the glory of rock and roll. Oh, and which he does extremely well. I think there's something else, and I want to know your opinion on it too. When I look at Hollywood and the way they've just been, you know, give, telling us all we need to know for the last few years, I think that it's, is it either the type of person who becomes a Hollywood star or it's the environment that creates this, it becomes this sort of narcissism. And by the way, I, I happen to know a little bit about narcissism from a personal standpoint. But anyway, there's this narcissism that develops that they think they're almost infallible with their opinion. It's like a Pope thing. Is that yeah. what is that? Does <laughs> that the kind of person that goes to Hollywood or does Hollywood do yeah, that I think to you? So. Did Phil Spector yeah, thought I he could pull a gun on anybody, right? Yeah. yeah, I think I think they, this is when when someone dreams of going to Hollywood, they dream of being with people like themselves. So, yeah, there is a self-selecting thing where all the crazy narcissists get together. Um, it is true. I mean, narcissism is, 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 the, is the mood of our age. You know, I, I was talking to a, um, a psychoanalyst, as, as you do. I was chatting with one, and she said, you know, uh, it used to be when we started out, you know, with Freud and so on, it was neurotics. That was what we were, we were treating people who were neurotic. They were hung up on something. And now we're treating narcissists. People have changed. And, and now when we find a neurotic, we ring each other up and say, look, I've got one. I've got a real live one. Uh, so narcissism is everywhere these days. And of course, it's just even more of it in Hollywood, which is the factory of narcissism. And yeah, again, these people are actors. And an actor, by definition, is somebody who says words that were written by other people and words they might not even understand. You know, if you go and see a Shakespeare play and there's a bit you don't understand, it's not because Shakespeare didn't write it clearly. It's because the actor doesn't understand the words. So when they're giving us these lectures about how we should live and flying about in private jets while telling the rest of us to walk, you know, they barely understand the language that they're saying. They, they, they speak a script and the script now is, is to be uh, left wing, virtuous, environmentalist, you know, uh, crazy person in effect people's day-to-day lives this doesn't look anything like people's day-to-day lives no but there it's a religion in this country now as we've moved away from actual traditional religion um you know the religion becomes madonna and listening to her and that to me is extremely troubling yes yes it is because um you know people say well religions tell you how to behave but that's precisely the good and the bad of it right there somebody is always going to be telling you how to behave and people will always need some kind of guidance. And getting it from celebrities has got to be worse than getting it from the professionals. Because after all, religions produce professional advisors in these matters, people who are soaked in traditions that have made our civilization. Show business as we know it is a fairly recent invention, right? It's, you know, we're a hundred years out basically from the invention of talkies. Um, so no, I, I think it's a, it's a very dangerous thing. It doesn't make people happy simply to be told what to do and in that way. Uh, and the religion of woke is basically a substitute religion, which is a, where people confess their sins. They confess imaginary sins of racism in order to be absolved, um, which, is, which is, you know, like religion without the fun, basically. <laughs> well, I wonder too, so if narcissism, I only have about 40 seconds left, but I wonder if narcissism is relatively modern as well. Because, I mean, my thinking is a couple hundred years ago, when, you know, we were agrarian and you were building things and you were working your butt off all day. Now, there's a lot of idle time now to become absorbed with your own thoughts. Um, yeah, I wonder if, nar- if narcissism is on this huge uprise as well. You got 20 seconds for that. 
right, we all have too much time on our hands and we're not doing enough with them. And narcissism is the result. <laughs> you're right. The busier we are, the better. Amen. You couldn't afford to be a narcissist when you're a farmer or when you're working in construction or doing all the jobs that people until recently did. <laughs> I'm curious as to whether or not I would find a way anyway back then. Thank you so much for joining us, Dominic. It's been a ton of fun. We'll talk Jim, soon, thank okay? You. Thank you. And you'll have to deal with pressure. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.